How's it going, everybody? Andy here. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. We have an incredible guest on, some, someone who we've wanted to get on the, the podcast for some time now. We've got none other than three-time major champion and this year's Ryder Cup captain, Padraig Harrington. I would say this was probably one of our favourite, if not our favourite podcast that we've done. Padraig's uh, obviously an unbelievable, talented guy and uh, somebody we've looked up to for a long time and admired in the golf industry, someone who's always searching for better. He's a student um, in terms of he's always learning, he's always looking for new things to improve and he's also going down the route now of some uh, instructional videos. He's got his own YouTube channel and, and Instagram and things like that providing content. So this really was a, a very enjoyable podcast for us. We get to know Padraig a little bit in terms of his background, his junior golf, and what led him to where he is today. We obviously talk about his major wins. We talk about the Ryder Cup. There's so much value and so many take-homes from this one. I think one, when you go through this podcast, you're going to realize there's some certain things that he talks about from a mindset side of things that, that we feel that you can take straight out of this and apply into your game immediately. So uh, we know that you're going to enjoy this one. It was quite hard, actually. We tried to finish the podcast and Padraig wanted to keep on talking, which was fantastic. It shows the type of character that he is. But we know you're going to enjoy this as much as we do. Let us know on social. Screenshot this. Tag us in and Padraig. Let us know your thoughts. And without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Padraig Harrington, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for giving your time. We're excited for this one. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, I've got to say this lockdown is not as easy as the first one. The weather was better here in Ireland than I suppose you know, second or third one we're in now back in Ireland and it's pretty miserable times. Now, obviously, I've got the golf to look forward to. So I'm uh, planning on heading out to the Middle East and, uh, and then to the States. So that's, that's the plan. And it's certainly keeping me somewhat optimistic. It gets me out practicing, uh, which is, I suppose, all you really need. Yeah, it's nice having that positive thing to look forward to. Well, well really, we're excited today. I mean, look, you're somebody that we've admired. You've had an amazing career and um, we've got so many questions that we want to sort of dive into today. But I think one of the things that we've admired about you as a golfer and, a, and your career is that you're somebody who always seems to be a student of the game, always learning, always in the pursuit of excellence and always pushing. And we want to sort of dive into that and where that comes from. But to kick the podcast off, but let's t talk about really when was it that you knew that you really wanted to be a professional golfer because I know you were studying accountancy when no, I was, yeah it was late for me I'd say uh, I was about 22 when I when I decided I would have a go at it and my logic was I didn't think I was good enough but I was better than the other amateurs who were turning pro so I says look if I, I can beat these guys and, and and for from 18 years of age through to 24 I didn't lose a, a singles match in the home internationals playing for Ireland at the top of the list or the European Championship. So I was beating the top players consistently, not losing anyway. And, and I just said, well, look, if they're good enough, maybe I should give it a go. And, and I would have, if you said to me when I turned pro that I was going to have five years as finishing 75th in the order of merit, I would have taken that and been very pleased and moved on. Like I saw my career as being, a, which, which remember now, this is back in the, so this would have been 95, but golfers retired in their 30s. Uh, you had most professional golfers went on to take a club pro job. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was the career. There wasn't enough money generally being made in the golf course. So I would have taken five years on the golf course, uh, built up a profile and come home and, and tried to get a, you know, a country club job. 
and and that was that was my goal. Do you think um, your I suppose your attitude or maybe the, the 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 belief that maybe you weren't quite good enough? Do you think that's what sparked you off to 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 explore ways to get better and become better and grow yourself as a golfer? Is that do you think that where it starts starts from? I I, I always had it. Uh, so I I don't know. I, it, Maybe it came from where, where I grew up playing. We didn't have a club pro, so I, I didn't have any formal lessons. We didn't have a practice ground. Our, well, if we, our practice ground was 110 yards, 120 yards long. So I, I always was, you know, I suppose I, I, I just could beat the people who I could see. So I started off learning to beat my brothers, then the other guys in the club. And then I started competing outside my golf club in the locality and beating those guys. And, and that's the way I've always been. I, I, I need a visual of what's in front of me and then I'll just attack that step. So I, I'm never like, I, I kind of laugh about it. Like you see amateurs now playing pro events at 14. I played my first professional golf event and bear in mind, I was the best amateur for, for like for six years in Ireland. I played my first professional golf event when I was 24 as a, uh, <laughs> yeah, as a pro never played one as an amateur. So it, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. You'd be, you'd be, you'd be, uh, 24 would be nearly, is it, is it nearly mid-amateur now at this stage? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think they've brought, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it was different times and, and again, when I was like, when I left school at 18, I went on to do accountancy, but I didn't really, back in the 80s, Ireland was a miserable place in the 80s, uh, you know, the opportunity wasn't there, like if I had known about sports management, if I had known about sports psychology, you know, these are things I would have loved to have done back then, and I might have never become a golfer, uh, or, or at least I would have enjoyed playing amateur golf. So it's just one of those things you move into it. But I, I think my best trait is I've always kind of, or at least when I started anyway, I played my own game, very much so. So I played with blinkers, and, and I often, you know, I didn't really... I didn't get outside my own game or I didn't realize, let's say, anything. So if I looked at myself now, if, if, if my 24-year-old golfer came up and played with me next week, okay, I would look at him and say, this lad ain't going to last. Because <laughs> of the style I played, I just, there's nobody could think that I could sustain the way I, I, I was shooting good scores, winning tournaments, low scores, I, I, you know, hitting nine greens in regulation you know, 10 grades in regulation. And I was, do, you know, this is, I was the ultimate of a pro who, who put for parts. You know, that old saying, pros who put for parts and dogs that chase cars don't last. And, I, and, and my fellow pros would have looked at it like that. And obviously the longer I sustained myself, there is one good thing about being a tour pro. The longer you are out there, the more you get, you learn and you get better. You, you become a better ball striker on tour just because you're playing with better ball strikers. You're playing in better weather, better turf. Uh, but you've got to bring something special with you. I'm not suggesting to anybody out there, just go play on the tour and you'll become better. If you bring, you know, if you've got the, the mindset and the attitude, very few people who play for a few years on tour don't end up, well, look, it's self-fulfilling. If you're there for a few years, you've got to, go, you've got to be good enough and getting better. And, and they do. Not everybody gets better out on tour what, for what? a while. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. What were the biggest gains that you made? Do you feel then? Obviously, you mentioned the, the greens and reds were pretty low. Yeah. You know, I think I had a good attitude always. So I, I, I very much concentrated on the job in hand, getting the score done. Didn't really, you know, it didn't matter to me 
I didn't count greens in regulation, put it like that. Yeah. Didn't know my stats. I just played my scores, did the job. So that was a very good part to it. But when I played the US Open in 19... Got to get this right. So it was Olympic Club in 98. I played the best I could play. I had my best short game for the week and I had a good week on the greens and I finished 27th. So that was a point to me that said, hang on a second here. I need, you know, this is as good as I can do with what I've got. Yeah. So that's when I, I changed coach. And, and, and the, the thing is, I was with Howard Bennett, who was the national coach in Ireland, who undoubtedly made me who I was in terms of my attitude and how I went about things and my ability to score and the mental side. But I knew Bob Torrance, he had the other part with that. He had a, like there was no player at, who Bob worked with that didn't become a ball striker. Every player he had was a good ball striker. I already had the mental side and the competitive side in the short game. Uh, so we were a match made in heaven, to be honest. And, uh, you know, we stood in the range all day, every day, working on, 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 on the swing. And, and as, if anybody, if you, uh, uh, you guys are probably too young to come across Bob really in his heyday. But like Bob didn't believe, the only time Bob believed you should chip the ball is back to a par four. <laughs> okay there was you know it was it was all about ball striking for bob and, and and you know he he had great success as i said every player we worked with became you know a quality ball striker so so obviously what you're saying from there obviously the technique obviously leads to good performance but how important was that for you and how important was bob's role in this i mean again what sort of things would you be working at yeah well, well as i said even in my amateur days Basically, what I do is if I look at somebody who was better than me, I go, well, why are they better than me? Oh, well, they're a better arm player than me. Well, if I can become as good as them as an arm player, I know I had this sense that my short game and my fortitude was good enough to beat anybody once I was level with them with, you know, if there was a weakness. So, and you can follow this. I'll actually go further with this to the to sort of later in my career. So essentially, that Olympic club, I said, look, I'm just not good enough a ball striker to compete with these guys. I have the rest of it. I need to improve as a ball striker. So I, I stepped back. I, I had a, a, like, I definitely in 99, I had a poor year. Like, I think I finished 32nd on the order of merit, which was, would have been my lowest in that time. Uh, a relatively poor year because I was so focused on the long game. It started coming back for the Ryder Cup in 99. Then it started coming back to 2000. I started winning again. And it wouldn't have got, you know, it came well, probably as far as 2006 before I got completely settled. I, Hang on a second now. Right. It's not short game. It's not physical ability to hit the golf ball. So where, where are we letting up? And I had been working on the mental game. I knew what a good mental game was. But that's when I would have focused even more on the mental game and less on the technical side of the game and, and, and it bear fruits. Now, you know, you could say, well, gee whiz, you know, why don't you just do that all the time? It, it's the same with all players. We look, at, we look at golfers and most golfers peak for 18 months. So you watch any golfing career, there'll be 18 months where the game is easier for them. Uh, and it doesn't matter what level, they just go up a couple of levels from there. Uh, even Tiger Woods had four majors at one stage. I'm sure the game was easier at that period. So, I went into a period where I became very comfortable. I described it to somebody the other day. I became the big fish in the, in the small pond. Now, I would say, and I look back at this in hindsight, you know, the game kind of changed. I, I played very well. 
obviously I won my major. I played very well. I played my best golf ever in 2009. I played well in 2010. Most people think I just stopped in 2008. <laughs> I actually played better the following years without wind. But I, I would definitely say Rory coming out definitely he was a catalyst to all, all of a sudden I can't beat this guy if I play my best and he I, or I don't feel like I can beat this guy if he plays well and I play well and and the problem that, that Rory did Rory allowed Bubba Watson Dustin Johnston and JB Holmes play golf those three guys already were as powerful before Rory came out but they were playing a short hitters game mm-hmm. the three of them were big hitters but like 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 I I played the Sawgrass, the very first year, uh, Dustin Johnson, he, he got in of his reserve instead of Adam Scott. So he played with me in the first round. We didn't know who he was, young kid. And he stood in the, up on the first tee with an iron. And I'm sort of nudging my caddy saying, this lad's a bit nervous, isn't he? You know, he's, he's a bit out of his depth. But that was funny at the time. But the point I'm trying to make is there's no way Dustin Johnson's hitting an iron off the first tee in Sawgrass. Mm. As in the game changed with Rory that all of a sudden, no, if you've got a driver and you can hit it well, just keep hitting it. Yeah. Don't, be, don't be playing to where the field is playing, play to your advantage. And, you know, we, we're seeing that now with Bryson, which is, I'm shocked because Rory did it. Like Rory blew the field away for, you know, 2011 and onwards with his driving. You know, and like I can remember Phil going up against Rory in Abu Dhabi and going, how, how can you compete against him? Where he's hitting the ball from, uh, you know, and 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 certainly that certainly left something. I went back to being, oh my God, I can't win unless it's something special this week type thing, and that that makes you push and work harder and and do things. But certainly, I I definitely I started putting badly and stuff like that. But I definitely was out of my comfort zone, and and look. That's no different. Every player goes in and out of this where they go and, and they turn up and they know, well, if I play my golf this week, I'm going to win. And then two years later, there's a new kid in the block and they're going, well, if he doesn't play so well, I just keep an eye on him. And if, you, you know, the worry becomes somebody else and then you don't play as well. Uh, so you will see that happen quite a bit. I, I, I see it's very evident with a lot of people in their careers that they just a little changes mentality-wise, and they're just not as much bravado walking around the place. They're just not the, the man about the place, and all of a sudden they're looking over their shoulder and worrying about the field. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Just You, you mentioned there about sort of, obviously there were a few mental things, and the, obviously we always talk about these are the non-visible things. I mean, in the world of golf today, you know, we work with Aaron Rye and we've got all the stats on him that we could ever want to see. So we know everything about him. But as you say, sometimes we're going on what's going on in your head. It's harder. It, yeah, yeah. I, I think the world, it's e- people want the black and white, for starters. They want to have an answer to every question. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at a golf swing, it's easier to analyze a golf swing. It's easier to analyze stats. And you can say, this is why a person is. But the reality is when you go to tour, or you can go around any club in the UK probably and you will find one or two players in that golf club who can physically hit the golf ball like any pro and they might break 80. And, and you can certainly find thousands of players who are on mini tours who can swing the golf club majestically and hit the ball majestically. So it can only come down to that X factor and it can't be measured. And that is the problem. And, and how do you, 
how do you instill it in somebody? Is it natural? How, you know, what, what is the way to create the X factor? And, and, and I believe it's going to be more important going forward, the X factor. So, you know, over the years, a good ball striker, there's been plenty of good ball strikers on the tour who aren't great golfers. You know, mm-hmm. they just hit the golf ball great. But if they were out of position, they wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, so they have good weeks and bad weeks. Then you have somebody like Tiger, who's an unbelievable swinger, ball striker, and has the mental side. So you have the perfect golfer in that sense. Going forward, there's going to be a lot more of the good golfers, good swingers, sorry, good hitters of the golf ball. It's much easier to, to understand what a good swing is looking like. So the depth of good strikers will be deeper on tour. So the only, one, the only way to separate yourself will be, hang on a second, I've got to be a good striker and actually have that little bit of genius, have that little bit of quality, uh, just like, like, which fascinates me about Tiger, by the way, because Tiger traditionally led greens in regulation, yet he maintained an unbelievable good short game. Mm-hmm. Whereas the way to have a bad short game is to hit a lot of greens in regulation. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you know, we know that. The way to have a... Tiger was able to... I don't know if it was practice or whatever, just his mentality, he kept an unbelievably sharp short game and yet still hit greens and regulate. I kind of wonder, is it more because back in the day, he pretty much hit at every par five and you wouldn't be hitting those necessarily in regulation. So, you know, and, and, and when you miss a par five, it does tend to be an awkward chip shot in terms of, you, you know, that usually you'd have a, a tight pin and a par five for a wedge. So it'd be, you'd be coming over something that could be a 30-yard pitch shot. So I, I often wonder how he kept that sharpness because, you know, I, I, that's how I see it. The more greens you miss, I know if I'm missing greens in tournaments, your short game gets really sharp. And if you're hitting greens, you know, you get presented one, a simple one, you go, oh, what, 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 what's happening here? <laughs> what do I need to do? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's Lee Westwood's fault. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lee Westwood, his whole life has, has just literally hit 16 greens around. He yeah. gets to practice two or three chip, chip shots at most a tournament round. And some of them are little chip and run putters or whatever. So, you know, if, if he was wild and he was in the, clearly, if he's on tour and he's wild, he must have a good short game. But that's how, you know, did, I don't know, Tiger did a great job at managing to have both, didn't he? He Absolutely. did, he did. Well, one question I'm just sort of intrigued about as you're going through this, I'm sort of thinking about, and, and you're renowned for an amazing short game and somebody say, some would say you're a genius around the greens and some of the shots that you've produced over the years have been pretty special. And you, sort of going back to your earlier days when you said that you were, top amateur for six years and you didn't hit many greens. Um, and you mentioned about you had a great attitude and I know a lot of the golfers listening to this who struggle to um, deal with poor shots. Do you think your, your game back then, not necessarily being super sharp, do you think your ability to deal with missed shots and just keep pushing on and keep grinding out is, is a real attribute to you as a golfer and, and, and what advice would you give to the, the people who struggle with actually the dealing with bad shots and keeping going and just staying patient and pushing on yeah I, I, it, that's the million dollar question uh, I, I know myself if you if you presented me with two 16 year olds and said right these are the two best golfers in 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 my county or in my golf club uh, and we went out and watched them play and they both shot 66 and you said to me well which one is the better player I'd say, well, the one who was in the trees all day and shot 66, not yeah. the one who hit the fairways and greens. Yeah. And, and that's very hard because 
clearly everybody wants to swing the club and hit the ball better and hit the fairways and greens. But it's not building that resilience. It's not building that imagination. And think of it like this. And I, I would have come across a few good, like clearly as an amateur, Michael Welch comes to mind. Beautiful swinger, ball striker. But at 16 years of age, I know he thinks he, he, he I, I've, thought, I've seen some interviews with him where he didn't think his swing was perfect or whatever, but he was a perfect ball striker. So if you're a perfect ball striker and say you're a perfect swinger at a golf club at 16, what do you do when you hit a bad shot when you're 17? Like, <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you blame? Like if you, and, and you could see this, I've, there's, a, there's a really talented young fella on tour. Actually, he's on tour, won a tournament, lost his card, kind of come and fringe back. And I saw him have to take, the knee, take a knee on the golf course with his hands in his head over frustration of, 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 of tinning a bunker shot. And basically what I was looking at is, here's a guy who's got perfection. And so every time he hits a... And the tour will only allow you to hit 70% of greens and fairways. You know, that's what you're allowed to do. It just doesn't allow any really any more on average. Just whatever, it's going to bring, drag you down to that level. So he's, he's already got perfection. So he misses a green, misses a fairway. What's he blame but himself? Yeah. Whereas you come into the game, I came from a very tricky golf course where you couldn't hit nine greens. You just could not hit nine greens in regulation on the court. It was bouncy, hilly, and windy. So you, you just couldn't hit nine greens in regulation. It, it would be a virtual. So I was used to just playing golf, find the golf ball and get the ball in the hole. It wasn't a question. I, I would never have counted. I wouldn't have known to count up fairways and greens when I was 16 years of age or 22 years of age, I would have just played. And I, I think the better you are when you're younger, and, and, and obviously people would say, well, look, Tiger was that way, Rory was that way, they, they might throw that out to me, but it brings huge pressure on you if you're already attaining yeah. perfection when you're 16. Yeah. And the tour, the, the, the problem with the tour, and you know, we're, I'm cynical, I'm older on the tour, but the tour is a... We've seen it before. It, it becomes a horrible place. Like, ah, oh, here comes another good one. Ah, oh, wait till he gets out here a few weeks. And, he, and, you know, and he's just one of the other, he's just one of the, the guys. And all of a sudden, as I said, he missed the cut and he played okay. That never happened before. How, what's he blame? Yeah. And I suppose from, from what you're saying, your, your environment conditioned imperfect golf and having that picture of, look, golf is imperfect. It's okay to hit bad shots. Is, is a great mindset to approach? A hundred percent. I've worked on it very hard. I've worked right from the age of 18 with a sports psychologist. I work with Bob Rotella and I still have to work on it all the time. Uh, I've won and played my best. A lot, a lot of tournaments I've played very well in, I was off form. Yeah. And I, I can't tell you the amount of times, I, I won't say this is a regret, but I can't tell you the amount of times I've played in a Saturday afternoon in a, in a pro event, got myself to within two of the lead, say, or in the lead, you know, right in position, last couple of groups Sunday, winning chance. And, made, you know, on Saturday evening, the last two or three holes in the evening, I'd be thinking, right, what do I need to improve for tomorrow? I'd go to the range. I'd practice onto dark or onto it. I was kicked off every range there ever was in the European Tour. they like, I am to range officials, I am the nightmare because I'm always trying to get the last bucket of balls when they're going home. But the amount of times I came out on Sunday feeling good about, better about my swing than on Saturday, hitting the ball better than on Saturday, but played worse because I made some, sometimes made bad, overconfident decisions. 
Because when you're not playing well, you make great decisions. You make great decisions. You, you will not take, the, if you're not playing well, you just don't take that shot on. You play to here. And then when you get the shot that you know you can play, you're just so focused on it because this is your opportunity. Uh, I used to try and explain this to Paul McGinley. <laughs> Paul McGinley was a beautiful ball striker. Fairways and greens all day, every day. And was an, uh, I won't call him a bad putter, but like he was an unlucky putter. Like he, he, he could find a way to miss a hole. Like it was amazing how he could hit a good putt to miss. So one day we were sitting there and I was talking. I said, Paul, you do realize this is, again, this is a bit of the, the Lee Westwood too, would be similar to this. You know, you hit a good tee shot down the first, good second shot to, you know, to 15 feet, 20 feet. You hit a good puff in 20 feet, the likelihood, the percentage to say it's going to miss, right? The second hole, you miss high, say. Uh, second hole, you hit two good shots to 20 feet, and you know what? You, you overbar on it again. Or, or I've played the first hole, I've hit a choppy old shot, and I've missed the green, and I've chipped it up to a foot, tapped it in. Second hole, I've missed the fairway, semi rough, not too bad, hacked it up around the green, bunker shot to two feet, tapped it in, right? So we're both made par. Now, the third hole is a four iron off the tee shot. So I hit the fairway, like Paul. It's a wedge into the green. We both hit it to 10 feet. Who's feeling confident over the 10-footer? McGinley's <laughs> yeah. missed two putts. He's thinking he hasn't got the pace. He hasn't got the line. I'm thinking I'm holding everything. I know I've only <laughs> hold a foot and a two-foot putt, but I'm, I'm, I'm the one. And I'll walk off after three holes, one under. And McGinley will walk off level par and, and tearing his hair out. Even more frustrated. And he's going to three put some green then coming up because of that. And I'm just thinking, gee, didn't life great? And golf is great. And so I'm not saying you've got to play like, play that way. And we're not trying to, but you, you've got to, if you want to be Tiger Woods, you've got to have both the attitudes. You've mm -hmm. got to have the ability to, to take on the shot, hit the shot. And when you miss, you then have to have, and Tiger was good this way. I, I would say if, if the one thing I would say about Tiger was, I always struggle to find the right word for this, but I think he was the tightest person ever on a golf course when it came to dropping a shot. Yeah. He just would not, like, he just did not give up a golf shot. Like, if he made a bogey on the hole, you know, that is, you know, there's no way he could have made better. You know, it was this, he was just phenomenal for that. And as I said, you don't generally get and Tiger was a very straight hitter early on in his career. It was the, is the, the media and that that got in his head. Uh, and remember, early on in his career, Tiger was hitting at miles, so he was cutting dog legs. So if he, if he, hit a, he could hit a decent shot and miss a fairway by 30 yards because of the angles and things like that. He was a really good driver. But definitely he had both sides of it. The consistency, and then he had that drive that, you know, no matter where he hit it. And I, I will have that on the golf course too. I had it even more as an when I was an amateur, it was even better. As I said, that it doesn't. I've I no pride. I've no embarrassment. Like if 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 I don't, care, there's there's pros who believe that if they hit a bad shot, that they deserve to bogey the hole. Like, Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. There, there there are pros out there that think that it's a normal thing. If I, you know, there are pros out there that think, well, if I miss the green by thirty yards, well, that's such a terrible shot. You're, of course, I deserve to make a bogey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't yeah. wouldn't cross my mind. No, no. <laughs> I, I think that's a, just. A, I mean, I've never looked at it like that, but I actually think that's just such a great lesson, and I'm sure a lot of amateurs have probably said that to their playing partners. Well, I deserve to make a bogey or a double wear. 
and I think there's a brilliant do, lesson. Do you know what? It's, we were watching we were watching some highlights from yourself, and I I can vividly remember Carnoustie, but I couldn't really remember Bert Bale that well. And we were watching the beginning of the rounds there, and it was literally showing you and Greg just the differences in what was happening. And you know, you were converting the putts, he wasn't, and it suddenly is just such a different mindset. It, everything you're thinking about your whole game, you know, is is there a point there where Greg is going? My game is just totally off today, and Harrington's is perfectly on. And like you say, uh, it, difference. I, I know you just because you brought it up, I will point it. Greg played phenomenal tee to green golf on that that Sunday. Mm. Mm. He hit a couple of tee shots that defied belief in the sense of like he hit a driver off six, and there was nowhere to hit it. He hit a he hit a perfect tee shot into a bush, basically. Uh, you know, he did one or two things like that where he. He because he, he loves his driver, he, he might have hit it once or t- twice too often and hit decent shots that didn't f- that found trouble. But he did play very well. The difference with me and, and and you know this crept into my game again. So if you looked at me now, right? So last year anyway, maybe two years ago, because I think I'm in great form. Okay, so we won't we won't say. So I could have a like an eight footer on the twelfth hole in the first round. And like, if I miss that, I'm actually, I'm standing over that putting, gee, if I miss this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the cut line, I'm going to miss the cut, right? When you're comfortable, when you feel like you're the big fish, right? You'd be standing over that eight footer and you know, I'm going to be in contention on Sunday, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Whether it goes in or it doesn't go in, I know I'm still going to be there or thereabouts on Sunday. So what's the chances of going in? Very high, yes. because I'm not stressed about it. You see that a lot with Dustin Johnston now. Yeah. Dustin Johnston, without practicing his putting so much, improved his putting massively three years ago. That, that run, I'm not talking now because he, he does look like the complete player now, but three years ago when he started practicing his wedges, he yeah. gave himself so many more chances. He then started putting well because, hey, look, if you've got a 12-footer for birdie and you're going to have another one on the next green, this one ain't that, that stressful. Yeah. And, and, I, I, and I think back... In my good days, again, when you're feeling comfortable and you're the man out there, you know you're there. I put it better because of the fact that, well, look, I know I'm going to be there. Whereas when I was under pressure from other players and outside my depth a little bit, in, you know, all of a sudden every putt became precious. And, I, I, you know, I had the yips in 2013. I played great. Yeah, 2012, 2013, I played unbelievable golf when I started, when I first year with Pete Cowan. Uh, but I had the yips. And, and again, it was, I was just on that limit. I'm kind of looking at this, and this is, this is, I'm wondering, I'm hoping for this next one. Ernie Els, clearly struggling on the greens. So Ernie, last couple of years on tour, he's on the limit. He's in that position that, you know, he knows if everything goes right, he can win a tournament. But he knows he can't take too many punches. He can't take too many hits. And he starts putting badly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Soon enough, he goes to the Champions Tour. Now he's putting well because he knows on the Champions Tour, yeah, you know, a few things can go wrong, but I'm still going to be there. I, I, and remember, for most golfers, all we're trying to do is with nine holes to go, we want to know if we play well for those nine holes, we can win the tournament. That's really, you know, you're not trying to win that tournament in the first 63 holes. You're just trying to be in position that if you play a good nine holes, that you have a chance of winning. And, and Ernie knows that's going to be the case on the Champions Tour. So he starts putting better. Uh, and I've seen that with a few guys going there. And, and look, it, it, 
it, that's the nature of the game. It's there's an ebb and flow, uh, and, and certainly I put it well early on in my in my career. Like I very rarely would have had. I used to win the putting stat every year, the lowest amount of putts, not the strokes gained, because again I didn't hit very many greens. I chipped it well, and people would say, "Well, gee whiz, you had twenty four putts." And I, and I used to think, well, does that make me a good putter? Actual fact, I was a really good chipper. Yeah, yeah. And if you chipped, it's, it's significantly different. You, you chip it to four feet or eight feet, like it's, a, like it's 90% more from four feet. It's yeah. down to your 50% or so from eight feet. It, it's significant how, how the difference proximity makes when it comes to chipping. Yeah. And it does make you into a better putter. Well, as with most shots with stats, it's the shot before that actually makes the stat the stat after. Then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I. You know what? You know, stats are great, and I, and I I do look I do look at them, and I'm interested in them. But most of the time, I'm looking at them in a contrarian view, saying, "Ah, oh, no, that's wrong. Actually, you're better yeah. off." There, there's there is still intuition when it comes to playing yeah. the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you, you know, I, I I remember there was a whole. Uh, in the Dutch tournament. So I've got to think of the, the golf course they played the last time around, the new course, uh, really nice one. Mm. Uh, anyway, there was a hole that had, you, you cross bunkers, you lay up four, four iron, and then it was like a nine iron in heavy wind. <laughs> to a, and it was a tight pin. And it was a nasty nine iron in the heavy wind. And I used to say, well, narrow fairway, whip it over the bunkers with your driver. So, you know, you find the rough, it was very heavy, but hey, you'll get it on the green, you should do. And if you hit the fairway, you actually have a very nice wedge shot. You know, from 100 yards, you're actually thinking of making birdie. With the nine iron, there was plenty of bogeys being made. And I just couldn't believe that the stats were saying this is the most important fairway to hit. And yes, if you missed the fairway hitting four iron off the tee, you were dead. Because yeah. you couldn't even reach the green because there was a hazard there. So it was the only the most important fairway if you laid up. If you went for it, it was actually okay, nice to hit the fairway, and and maybe you gained. You could, you, you, there might have been still a significant gain on that hole by hitting the fairway, but the gain was from a four and a quarter to say the three and a quarter hole, rather than if you laid up, you were probably three point nine to four point five the hole. Yeah, yeah, you still need to. There's there's always a story behind those numbers, isn't there? Yeah, um, yeah, you, and look, that's what we talked about. That's what the X factor is. Young guys have to learn how to play their golf, play to their strengths. A, a, a good example, again, I said that about Rory, but Gary Woodland is a perfect example. You know, he comes out and tour, he's a 190 ball speed player. And he played for four years, I'd say three, four, five years, uh, like a short hitter. I remember playing tournaments with him and I'd be paired with him and he'd hit an iron off the tee and I'd hit it 20 yards past him with my driver and you might say, well, gee whiz, isn't he a long hitter with his iron? Hey, I'm 20 yards past him. And, yeah. and Tim, Tim Clark, he was brilliant at that. Tim Clark would go on the golf course and a lot of golf courses. And if you added up the total distance of his approach shots, it was much shorter than the long hitters. Back in the day now, because he would just hit driver down, all the way down into bottlenecks everywhere. And they'd be laying up. So often he'd get 20, 30 yards on those layup holes that would make up where he'd be losing 40 yards on some of the par fives. He just... If you added up the total, it just came. To, and, and that's what I mean about player. Whatever your strength is, you've got to make sure you play to that. If you're a long hitter, figure it out how to be a long hitter. If you're a short hitter, you've got to figure out how to be a straight hitter. 
if you you know play to your own strengths yeah good advice yeah, I love that. but we're talking about distance and i know this is something that you've um you've been down the the journey of jumping on the distance train trying to get more out of it um yeah we'd love you to talk about why that was uh, and what you've really found out about gaining distance that you can share with the listeners to this Okay, gee whiz, we've got two hours, we've got two hours, buddy, so we're fine. Okay, let's talk about the distance debate first, because yes. I want to get this, off, get this off my chest, right? Every time people talk about the distance debate, they, they focus on one point, and it's an opinion point, whether you like to see somebody hit it a long way and hit a wedge into a par four, or where you prefer them to hit a drive and a four iron into the par four. That's only opinion. It can only ever be, you can't argue that because... I might like it, you might. That's up to you. It, it really, and, and the, the focus tends always to be around that central point of it's not great for the fans or TV or whatever. But it's again, nobody can empirically say one or the other. But I think the irrefutable facts are it costs more to build a big golf course, which is an issue, costs. It costs more to maintain a golf course, which is a big issue in golf. It takes longer to walk around the big golf course, which is a massive issue in golf yeah. time. Like these new tee boxes, like in St. Andrews, they can add five minutes to a hole. Mm -hmm. It can be over two and a half minutes back. Like some of them are back a hundred yards. So, so you, you're, and then it also slows down play in terms of bottlenecks. So you have two ways of slowing down play because if you can reach par fours or par fives, everything stops. Yeah. It also is more dangerous. Because I know if I go to my local club, if you miss a fairway now, when I was growing up, if you missed the fairways, you clattered into the trees. Now you bomb it, you miss the dog leg, you're pitching in the middle of the next fairway where there's people are. So it's more dangerous. And obviously there are golf courses that are defunct now. Some great golf courses that are landlocked that just aren't playable anymore. So there are six good reasons why there should be a rollback. And we have the opinion. Now this last reason, right? is a reason that people haven't thought through, okay? It's a massive advantage to long hitters if they roll back. Just an incredible advantage. Mm. So if you're Bryson DeChambeau and you're pitching at 350, okay? And you say, right, we're going to roll it back 10, 10%. So we're now at 315. And somebody was at 320 is now at 290, 288, okay? There you go. I can tell you, if you gave me 350 tomorrow in the air, I couldn't use it. Because at 350, I'm finding out of bounds on fives and hazards. It is very narrow at 350. At 320, I'm still 30 yards ahead now. Still, I have that length advantage. But it's a lot easier to hit the ferry at 320 or, and at least hit the golf course. Yeah. So the big hitter should be screaming to have a rollback because it would play massively into their hands. Uh, and the cat's out of the bag now. Like, we, you guys, we all look at it on the internet. There's guys out there like Cameron Champ, a dime a dozen, they're out there. They're 200 mile an hour ball speed or at least high 90s, and it's effortless. Yeah. You know, they're not like the Shambo, you know, it's, it, you know, that's, or me, I, it's a big heave for me to get to where I'm getting. But these guys swing at 190, 200, and it, they're like, like, Cameron Champ looks like he's hitting a pitching wedge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 the most beautiful sight ever to go. And doesn't matter what they do with rollbacks, speed is always going to be there now. For like, if you went back and used that ping eye two seven iron from the eighties, I would have swung that at 
probably 85 mile an hour, 88 mile an hour back in the, in the 80s. Now, you know, guys are swinging that seven iron 110 mile an hour. That club hasn't changed. As yeah. in, that's never, you know, whatever they do, that iron. So players will have more power out of rough, more spin, more, you know, more height. It is an advantage to have speed. No doubt about it. And it's a good thing. Look, let, let it be athletic. Again, as I said, as everything narrows down, you'll need to be a genius to be the one to separate yourself. Yeah. So how do you gain speed? Well, I think we could go down the road of oh, uh, Michael Jacobs, 3D Golf, who did the first analysis. So we could look at that. And essentially, they pretty much figured out the average force, so how hard you pull on that golf club and push at the right times and the length of the swing determine how fast you are. So if you can do everything the same and get higher hands like Dustin Johnson or Bubba Watson, you're going to have more speed. Clearly, if you can do everything efficiently, efficiently like Rory McIlroy and get the torques going properly and, and have that club doing work in the right way, you're going to have speed. And that's great for golf because you've got a little guy and you've got a big guy and they both hit it great. And we've seen that, as I said, some of these fast, like Cameron Champ is a pretty athletic guy, but he's, 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 he's not six foot eight. Mm. You know, he's not one of those guys. So, you know, he's six, six foot or five foot 11 or something. You know, you, he, he doesn't stand out in the locker room. There's some oh, big guys now on tour. Uh, so as regards, so for anybody who wants to get speed, you know, I do prescribe to the, the old training maxim and, and, and TPI would have brought it to me first. Look, you know, if you start off young and you, you, you know, you get your speed in your first growth spurt, you're going to have rocker fuel. If you do it in your second growth spurt, you know, at 13, 14 years of age for a boy, you're going to have jet fuel. Do it when you're a teenager, you're going to have petrol and you do it later on like me. You're going, well, even though I was, fa- I was the fastest kid in my school. Yeah. sprinting wise you know so it's it doesn't necessarily turn over that you could be fast and fast at golf it, it, it i think speed in golf is far more psychological so what you think is okay or what you think is normal what you think is reasonable takes over in terms of keeping the golf ball on the golf course so if i was a you know especially you know 13 14 15 16 giving it a good old trash and the benefit of that is the more they have a lash at it and trash away at it, the wilder they'll be. And the wilder they'll be, the better their short game and their X factor. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and remember, if they don't make it, we'll know, know about them. If he does make it after being wild, we'll say, well, that's why. So <laughs> it, it is, it, you know, I would, again, that's what I would look to be exciting at that age and then tame it back for the tour uh, rather than being steady at that age it's very hard to progress later on. Yeah, totally agree, totally agree. Let's get into some major questions. I've got a, we've got a few, and I think you've kind of answered a few already, and I wanna, so I, I have two. The first one, and I need to know exactly what this is because I've probably referenced this that many times in a lesson. Can you talk us through the technique on the fifth shot that you've hit on the 18th at Carnoustie? The pitch shot over the, what, what was yeah. the, the well, club? I, I, I think you've got to understand first and foremost, I did have box grooves there. Okay. So there was, there was, a, 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 there was no doubt the ball was coming out low with spin. Yeah. So that, 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 I will say 
it was a cruel change when they changed the groove rule for me. Yeah. But it was the correct rule for golf. And, and it really did hurt me. It, again, it, it put me under more pressure on the golf course because I missed more greens. I was used to having the grooves. But I think technique-wise, there was two things that stood out. Like, technically-wise, and this is very interesting, I never, ever really work on my technique when it comes to chipping. So I, I, my whole life was, as I told you before, I had a small practice ground. I just stood there and hit chip shots. So I, I had that purity when it comes to chipping that, just hit it, keep hitting it, do that, figure it out yourself. It's only since I've become a pro that people ask me what it, like, I can remember going with Tommy Horton. They used to have an orientation called the McGregor Week. And for the tour pros, I went down to for a week and we, you know, Tommy Horton was the short game coach and he brought us out and he's, we're in groups and he's right. He's hit a few chip shots and then he throws a few out and, you know, he threw a few into a divot or whatever. And I just got in. And by the way, I was way better at this stage of chipping. Okay. Threw it into divot. I just flopped it up there. What you want? I, I just hit any shot you want. And he said to me, "Well, what did you do there?" <laughs> I had no idea, none, none whatsoever. I just did it. Since I've understood more what I'm doing when I'm chipping, I'm not as good. Okay. So I, I there, like, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean I might nearly get as many up and down. But there isn't the same purity at all. Like I, I, I might like I can only describe this, and I, I describe it with my my friends every day. I play Port Marnock Golf Club in Dublin, the 18th green. I played David Higgins, who was on tour in the final of the Irish Close Championship, and we both on a really baked out golf course. We both hit it over the back of the green, flag tight to the back of the green. So we're maybe 10 yards from the flag, uh, say eight yards off. No, we, we probably. 12 yards, so maybe eight, 10 yards over the green and maybe three yards of green. So David Higgins just takes out putter. Now, match is tied and puts it up stone dead. I'm eight yards, 10 yards off the green, baked fairway links. I lobbed it up stone dead in the, like on the last hole. And people say that was the most amazing shot. What, how did you, why would you choose that shot? You know, and I, I went, what, that, that, that's what you do. <laughs> I did not know any different. I just, when I miss a green and it's a flop shot, I hit a flop shot. Now, I would get that up and down today because I take my putter out. Yeah. N I guarantee I would not take my lob wedge. And now I, I pride myself on being a great chipper. No way am I taking the lob wedge out. Putter. Putter is sensible. I'm a sensible golfer now. Much The tour does that to you. It beats you down. You, you go for options and sensibility. And, and true enough, over the years, I've had to, because of questions, I've had to learn. The key for me for short game is you've just got to, you've got to keep your weight forward. You can't have this backing up motion. You, okay, it's interesting because I have been changing my pitch in action during this break. And, and somewhat that's got into my chipping action. So I am sometimes backing up to get a stronger face on it, to, to get that action of, of, of strong face shut down and then coming up through it but I'm definitely doing it from my weight being left. Yeah. So I, as I say to somebody, start off, plant your weight in the left side, keep it on the left side, work just a neutral square chip shot up, back down, wrists or no wrists, whatever you want, stay in the left, and then start working in, getting very active hands and flipping it and cutting it and just experimenting about what you want. But I think the key here is 
where your center of gravity is. If it squeezes into that right side, if it goes onto your right side, you are lost. You can play everything from the left-hand side of your body. And once you get comfortable there, you can start experimenting. Because clearly, if you're in the rough, you're going to hang back a little bit more. But learn that shot, sit on that left side. Like I'm talking, practice, if anything, with 99% of your weight there. I've done a few things on, on, on Instagram, on my YouTube of, of you know, putting an alignment stick or, 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 or just to keep you pushed left. Stay left with that divot. And once you get the strike, and it'll be the same with the bunkers, once you have that strike, all of a sudden that gives you the comfort. Now go, hang on a second, I can do a little bit more with this shot. But uh, yeah, never will I have the, the, the innocence that I used <laughs> to have. When I, when I, and even for about a year or two on tour. But I used, you know, when I first came on tour, every day, every every like Tuesday to Sunday, well, Tuesday to Saturday, not Sunday, I did an hour's putting and an hour's chipping every day. Mm. So every day. Now I can't do that anymore physically. That's just too much. But every day I did an hour putting, an hour's chipping. So on top of the 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 hours I might have put into hitting the golf ball and the practice rounds. So you know, if you do a lot of practice, and and it. Again, you will see that on tour. People practice what they like doing. Now, I like chipping, so I practice my chipping. Maybe that was it. I, I, but I did do the other practice. But I've seen many a good ball striker who are on tour, and I just go, why are you on the range? Yeah. Like, like the, probably the best one of the lot is, is Joe Durant. Joe Durant led the, 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 the fairies and greens and regulation like most years, you know, when I was on tour in the, I suppose, 2000 and you know, 2004, maybe up to maybe 2010, those years, he was always leading fairways and greens. And, you know, he would do, he, un, un, unlike a lot of American players, he would do some practice, but only on the range. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw him chipping and putting. And like you're going, you're already the best at that. <laughs> you know, just, it, but we, we all have our mental hangups. Yeah. Like, like, if, if, like you guys, you're there working with Aaron Rye, He's a very sensible lad, probably not a great example, but you could look at anybody. You could look at me and you could go, hang on a second. If we could manage you, we'd take you away from doing that and we'd make you do a bit more of that. And that's what Dave Allred does. That's what Dave has done with Lou Donald. You know, and really what he did with, with Frankie Molinari was with, with simplicity and genius at the same time. He made Frankie practice what Frankie didn't like practicing. Yeah. Frankie liked hitting balls on the range because he was good at it. He didn't like practicing in his chipping. He didn't like practicing his putting because he wasn't great at them. And he made him practice it. He made him do things to get better at his chipping and putting. And Frankie just didn't do that up to then. And he liked practicing the long game because, you know, it gave him, made him feel good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Made him feel good, absolutely. Yeah. That's your game. It's practicing ugly, isn't it? I think a lot of people use that phrase now, practicing ugly. Um, yeah, it, it, it's always out trying to find a way to put yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Okay, right, we've got a couple more questions. First one, obviously we can't not talk about the Ryder Cup. Um, and you're, I mean, you've had tremendous experience. Six Ryder Cups, five wins, is that right? Uh, what is it? Six, six played and three vice captains and lost in Valhalla. Uh, yeah, that's correct. That's oh, correct. and the first one, I knew I'd lost another one. Brookline, lost <laughs> Brookline. four out of six. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I mean, look, what are the, I mean, it's going to be such a great thing to have the Ryder Cup hopefully this year. 
with so much experience, what are going to be the key ingredients that you've experienced um, that you think you can leverage in terms of bringing from the, from the captaincy? And, and, and what are the, the unique things that you feel that you can take as captain? Let's, yeah, there's one or two unique things that I have learned over the years, but mostly it, it's, it's trying to do the good stuff that you've seen out there. Uh, yeah, I've been aware of one or two players that I've watched on, on, on as vice captain, not much as a, as a player. All you learn from being a player is when you become vice captain, you realize what you didn't know as a player. That's, <laughs> like, players want all this information that's not there because we're used to running our own lives and all of a sudden it's outside our control. So I think we, we've figured that out as, as vice captains and, and captains over the years. You, you do give the players as much as you can. You give them as much information about when they're likely to be playing, who they're likely to be playing with, what they're going to be doing and keeping them informed. You, you don't want situations like you would have gone back to, you know, 90, oh, well, let's not mention years, but you know, some years where players were finding out that they weren't playing from the media, you know, you want to get that information first. You've got to keep everybody in the loop balanced. Some players, you've got to understand every player is different. So some players will, will, will want that information. There will be one or two players that just want to get on with it. You know, just want to be left alone to do their stuff and get on with it. You've got to recognize that. Uh, and, and really probably just, just watch the personalities and just understand what each one needs. And there's, they, you know, one size does not fit all. Uh, and, and definitely watch out for that. And, and, you know, again, we're always going to be trying to build our partnerships, you know, trying to get, trying to get that partnership where the rookie plays better than himself because he feels comfortable with the experienced senior player and the senior player plays better because of the enthusiasm of the rookie. You know, yeah. that's the sort of thing we're looking for, that yelling of, uh, of, of players together and, and, you know, that, that's very important in, in, in the Ryder Cup for Europe. And, and I think that, you know, that's some sometimes where we, where we do gain the advantage. Uh, yeah, so we're kind of outside of that. Uh, yeah, there's, there's one or two practical things that I keep to myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'd be very happy to, you know, I well, I will change one or two things, but not, 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 there's nothing substantial in the organization. The one thing you do learn, you learn as a vice captain, uh, learned a lot with Darren Clark. Okay. You know, with, with, with Paul in, in, uh, at Glen Eagles, you know, Paul did a great job. Everything went, went well. You know, there was only, there was really only one hiccup, uh, of, of, you know, of Poser and, uh, Stephen Gallagher, poor Stephen got, you know, got into the team late and got thrown under the bus really, you know, didn't get a great start and, and you know, it was a, it was a shame for him, but it, it, you know, outside of that, everything was, was very organized and went as, as expected. Obviously with Darren's, it was just chaotic after the, after the start of the week and, and, you know, we, then we lose them, lose the first session out and it just was a, it was always a scramble to catch back up. And I, I don't mean just points, I mean the whole thing. And uh, you see a lot more then. There's some big choke points in, in, in a Ryder Cup and uh, the captain uh, has to be aware of it. And I think that was the one thing with uh, Thomas, both myself and Thomas uh, in France had been there. We'd seen this. 
and we understood it. We were very, and Thomas was, was, it was excellent to the extent that he knew, I knew, and we were prepared for those points where Thomas would have to go, right, guys, prepare something for me, have it ready, give me the option. Because the captain can't do it at the Ryder Cup. It's, it's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of, of media, a lot of things, pressure pulling. He needs, the vice captains are crucial. Yeah. To, to, to really do a lot of the legwork and present right. And, but obviously the book stops with the captain. He's yeah. got to make the decisions, but he's got to have his vice captains. He, they've, got to, they've got to have teams ready, options ready, strategies ready, because it moves very quickly on the golf course and the, the captain can't cover everything. That's good. I've never really thought of it that way, to be fair. Yeah. But yeah, it makes sense. Well, think, think, of, think of it like this, guys. At 11 o'clock on Friday morning, Okay, you, you've got to put your teams in at 12. So at 11, you start thinking about your teams. Players have only played nine holes. Mm. You, you, we've often seen winning combinations getting dropped for the afternoon because they finish well. And a, a combination who were two up, all of a sudden finish terrible. And they're playing. And you, you know, it's, it's, it's not... People think like the decision can be made at five to one. When with perfect knowledge, no, the decision has to be put in at like twelve o'clock for the one o'clock start or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a there's a lot going on, uh, and as I said, I think Thomas really did a good job in Paris. But both myself and Thomas, from being with Darren, poor Darren took one for the team, uh, unfortunately with with the whole. And again, Mark James took one for the team in '99. You know, he he. he I suppose every captain has done some stuff that, you know, you look back and, and uh, you know, okay, what, that wouldn't be the way. And then every captain has done some great stuff. But poor Mark James, obviously, you know, he would have been a hero if he won that Ryder Cup. But his strategy has, will never be repeated ever in the, in, in the history of the Ryder Cup, going, or whatever the history is called going forward. <laughs> it will never be repeated. Yeah. All because of what, what, what happened to Mark. Yeah. And yet, if he won, we might think that was a way to go. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. The fine lines, the fine lines. Well, I'm glad you didn't share too much because our, our audience is heavily US, so <laughs> yeah. we want to hold some of those secrets for Europe. As long so. as it, it's okay, as long as it's not Steve Stricker. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is, he is a fan of ours. He does, he does listen to the podcast. <laughs> Look, I think, I think they have it. They, they know what they're doing as well at this stage. You know, there, there isn't too many. Uh, I don't think there's too many secrets when it comes to the Ryder Cup. So, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Any, I, I'm shocked if there is anyway, put it like that. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll tell you what, Andy, let's go into some quick fire now. And then yeah. I'm, we're going to talk, I'll finish off talking about okay. uh, Padraig's huge, huge Well, we will keep these quick fire. They're normally not quick fire, but we'll, uh, we'll work through these pretty fast. Okay. Um, this might be a hard one to answer, but we'll, we'll ask it anyway. Favourite Ryder Cup captain? Oh, uh, that is a hard one to answer. You know, Sam Torrance and Wuzzy were, were really good to me in terms of arm around the shoulder, confidence. I like Bernard Langer purely because of, I think, similar, somewhat similar personalities. Uh, I think uh, Monty was excellent in terms of what the job he did. Monty gave great confidence to his team. Mm -hmm. Really great. He made everything believe. It's amazing the decisions Monty made during the week he made it believe like the players made the decision, but he was making them. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you can be assured of it, Monty was making them. <laughs> he, did give, he did instill a team. That was probably the first Ryder Cup team that I was in, that Monty convinced the team, no, we are actually better than these guys. 
better than them. It wasn't a, a situation of, oh, we need to play well, do well. No, we're actually better. They, these are the guys who need to, to have a good week if they're going to win. So that, that Monty did a great job. So, I, look, I had some great captains. They're, they're all unique. Uh, Mark James was very entertaining. Sure. <laughs> so that was a good start to the quick fire. That was good. That was yeah. good. Okay, um, best shot of your career? Uh, you know, I'd be renowned for this, the, obviously, the 71st hole at, uh, at the 2008 Ryder Cup. At, geez, I'm blanking here. At, uh, I watched it on TV oh. for the first time the other day. <laughs> you yeah. got as well? Oh, crikey. What, what, I watched it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm all Ryder Cup menu. I'm thinking Belfry here. It's, uh, I can oh Google it here if you like. 2008 <laughs> Ryder Cup. Oh, where was no, it? No, not Ryder Cup. No, uh, Open. 2008 oh, Open. Berta. 71st hole. I had a, yeah, so uh, senior moment. Uh, <laughs> so the, obviously I'm going to be renowned for that five-wood shot. And in hindsight, it is the best shot I ever hit. But I was feeling good. And Bob Tarns, my coach at the time, always said, it's easy to hit a great shot when you're feeling great. It's really difficult to hit an okay shot when you're feeling bad. And I, I would put down the fifth shot at Carnoustie as the greatest shot I ever hit because I could have given up. I could have, you know, just chipped it on two put it and, you know, licked my wounds. Yeah. Uh, so I would put that as my greatest shot ever. Yeah. I love that quote from Bob. I've not heard that. And I think yeah. that's a great quote. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Um, okay. You know, uh, you, I have to say about Bob Tarns, there wouldn't be a week that goes on the golf course, hardly a day that goes on the golf course that one of his pearls of wisdom is not said by me or my caddy. As in, he was way before his time in terms of psychology and, and just the, the, the quotes just come out all the time, just little ones like that. Yeah, well, do you know what? I'd say? I mean, we never had the chance to meet him, but he sounds like a person who, who understood golf, but also understood people, which is really just crucial, isn't it? Yeah. Crucial. Well, I, I worked with him as he was older. You know, he was, he, he was, he was pushing 80. And I, I used to say, well, I hope I have his attitude when I'm, when I, when I'm his age. Yeah. He just, he really enjoyed life. Yeah. Brilliant. Love it. Okay. A uh, favorite major, actually, no, I'll skip one. Um, favorite Ryder Cup memory. Oh, I, 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 again, you're, you're really, there's too many to pick from. I think that the, the best match was my first singles match for me in, uh, in Brookline. I know we lost, but winning it, I thought I'd won the Ryder Cup on the 18th. It, it looked like it was the pivotal match. So that's probably my most exciting moment. Uh, you know, people would think, well, winning in Ireland, but Ireland was a nice win. Everything was very pleasant about it. I think you need a little bit, you know, 2002 was very meaningful winning with Sam after losing in 99 and then winning away from home with Bernard in 2004 was very meaningful. So those probably... I'd say 2002-2004 were the most exciting wins for me, for sure. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, and last one. Uh, Favourite major venue? Uh, you know, people would ex might expect me to say Carnoustie, but I think Carnoustie's too tough. You know, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I just think <laughs> it's, it's, a golf it's a golf course to respect. Yeah. yeah. I, I think St. Andrews is the place to love. You know, just to hold the town, the village, everybody, everybody is golf, 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 golf. It's all about golf. And it just has an atmosphere second to none. Uh, you know, if I was, if you asked me. Oh, oh. Don't know. 
they've lost. Ah. To play a golf course is my favourite. We just lost you then, actually, uh, Padraig, sorry. <laughs> okay. Just froze for like 20 seconds. We just I saw off. you guys frozen. I didn't know if, you'd, if I'd frozen. So <laughs> I, I, gave, I, I gave a fantastic answer. You really, you really, really liked it. It was, a, it was a secret to winning the 2021 Ryder Cup, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was it, yeah. <laughs> It's actually oh, the lottery numbers this week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, guys, if you're going to wish for something, you should go big. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and look, I mean, you've been absolutely fantastic with our time, but one thing for sure we have to talk about is your content that you're creating on Instagram and now on YouTube. It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. And anyone who hasn't heard of this, they should 100% go and subscribe and go and follow you. But what made you do it? What was the catalyst? You know, I, I, I've always enjoyed coaching. And I mean, more to do with my pro-ams. Every week, everybody gets a lesson. You know, mm. one or two tips that plays with me. I, I was injured last year and I spent, I spent three weeks at the Bears Club. And I think by the end of three weeks, if you made eye contact with me, you were getting a lesson. That was <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'd, be hunting, think I'd be hunting people down the range. You know, they'd have to hide from me. I'm fascinated with how complicated the game is for like a 15 handicapper, a 20 handicapper, a beginner. And I've seen over the years, I've seen athletes come to the game and just throw away every bit of athleticism mm. because they get constrained with some silly idea that, you know, you could swing a stick forcefully by keeping your head still or keeping <laughs> your head down or keeping your feet rigid. You know, these concepts, of, you know, the, 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 I suppose the biggest problem is a really good golf swing looks a certain way, but it ain't that way. Again, yeah. like we talked about Cameron Champ. Cameron Champ looks like he's smoothing his driver at 200 mile an hour. He'll tell you he's giving it a damn good hit. Yeah. You know, it, it, the better you make a move, the less you look like you're moving. But the fact of the matter is the golf swing is no different than throwing a ball, is no different than swinging a tennis racket, a baseball bat, anything. It's the same movement. You must pivot, lead in, and then turn on top and hit it. But most people just give it a little bit of a hit. What, ultimately, what happens is you get an athlete come to the game of golf who was who okay at you know, baseball. They, you know, they could play baseball. They might not have been made the school team, but they could hit a baseball. They come to golf, they pick up a golf club, they swing what they think is a good move and they miss the ball yeah. and they assume that they made a bad swing. Whereas actual fact, their swing and movement was fine. Their coordination was off. Just keep doing it for a while. Then it will just build up, build up, build up. But instead of doing that, they sacrifice everything at the start in order to hit the golf ball and, or maybe hit it straight or hit it in the air. And, yeah. and you know, if you sacrifice too much at the start, all of a sudden, you're never going to hit it more than 180 yards. or you're, You know, this is... So I, I just really am passionate about the fact that everybody... I'd love everybody to enjoy the game of golf because I think it's a brilliant game. I think it's fantastic. I just really do think getting out there has the physical side, it has the mental side, it's got the camaraderie, it's the fun, it's the... It's the on, everything in golf, it surely is the best game in the world. I just want everybody to play it to a reasonable level. I think... You know, you should be able to get to single figures. Clearly, if you want to become a low handicap golfer, you know, scratch golfer, you do need coaching. You need proper coaching. You know, there's detail, there's stuff at, it, at that level. But, you know, to flick the golf ball down the fairway 
you know, 220 in the air for a normal, like a man, 230, 240, a bit of run on it. You know, if you can do that, you easily play to six or seven or eight or nine handicap. Yeah. And, and, and that's all that's needed. And this chasing of, of, you know, this idea that you could, it's very hard. You're just not going to turn into a scratch golfer. All, and all the work trying to get there in some ways is limiting your ability just to go out there and enjoy it, move the ball forward, decent enough short game that you can, you know, you're not throwing away shots. It should not be difficult to play off your members' tees and go around the nine over par. Yeah. You, 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 you're doing some, you've, you've, unless, obviously what we, we, and you guys will realize this as well because, you know, you'll see this as well because you're in this coaching game there are some people that have genuine limitations in movements and they will end up with a golf swing that just, you just can't turn. Like, and the amount of guys you get, a big guy, big chest, you're just not going to turn. Look, mate, don't try and turn. Why bother trying? You know, if you've got a big chest, you ain't going to make a 90-degree shoulder turn. That's not you. you. And I turn around to a guy like that and say, go watch uh, Craig Stadler. He'll just throw that club out there in front of him and just heave the hell down on top of the ball. Mm-hmm. And he'll use his hands and arms to square the face up. And he, he, he won the Masters, a great player. Yeah. You know, so there's none of this. Uh, I think people get caught up in that you're not going to wake up tomorrow and swing it like the Tiger Woods. And if, if, if I do have one gripe in the, in the game of golf, I really do. Everything since 1990. That period, 1990, probably to 2005, really made a mess of golf. If you watch the stuff pre-1990, anything in black and white, those guys knew how to coach. You go back and watch Hogan teaching on, on when he's on the Bob Hope show or something, you know, those things. They're teaching how you're just getting that movement of the body and the feet going back and forth. They knew that they were dealing with amateur golfers. Yeah. And, and there's no way a regular person is going to be able to keep both heels on the ground and make a full backswing hip turn and, and turn back on top of the like that that's probably my biggest bear bug at the moment is this idea that you could swing the golf club like Brooks Kepka. Yeah. There is nobody, no normal person is going to have like a 30 degree hip turn and hit the golf ball decent. We we always talk about it. We always say there's it's very rare we say to anybody, turn your hips a little bit less. <laughs> like, yeah. Can we just free that free that up a little bit? Come on, let's uh, let's create a little bit more. But I think it's a it's a great point, and I think we're at a point now where, like you say, maybe old coaching um, coached a lot of the athleticism out of golf, um, but now things are becoming a little bit more free. And the work that TPI do, which is fantastic, um, they're understanding what is needed and to help us educate golfers of of what they can do physically so they can get the best out of themselves, which is a massive thing, really. It, it, it is a tough thing because what you would tell a potential player at 13, 14, 15 years of age is not necessarily what you're going to tell a, a new guy at 35 years of age. Yeah. You know, if, if, a, if a guy at 35 comes to me, I'm telling him, make sure your wrists are really active. Make sure you're making that big follow-through. Start off giving it a good swish, a good hit. You know, you get a young kid, you are starting to say, okay, you've got the flexibility, you've got the moves, we want to do this. We, you know, we want you, you know, we want you, a kid, we want to see him go down that wrist at the top of the backswing. Very important if you're going to be a player, you know, that we want to see that nice change of direction. 
doesn't matter if nothing like for a forty year old guy, just get out there, give it a keep giving it a flick forward, give it a bit of and you'll be grand. Yeah. Absolutely grand. But I think that is somewhat some of the problem is elite coaching. So the same video can go. I, I really was trying to stress a lot of my videos are for the weekend golfer. I don't, I'm not interested in, in, in trying to help my fellow pros, mm-hmm. even though some of them have said I've helped. So maybe on the short game and things I can help in that area. But when it comes to the golf swing, you know, telling a, 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 let's say a 45-year-old woman, lay the club down in the downswing. <laughs> Okay, now what, like, a good player has to, like, it takes a reasonable knowledge to know what that really means. Mm. Like, even I would spend quite a bit of my coaching up in a time with Bob Torrance where we rotated in the backswing and got the club open and laid off, okay? So, it was, and then we came down and rotated into impact. Where with our, our forearm rotation and then that rotated. So we had the uh, pronation of the left wrist by rotating our forearm into impact. Whereas now, it's pretty evident. You go back, try and be neutral, pronate the wrist in transition. And then, which again, which is not, you actually release that wrist. So you're actually, uh, you're supinating the wrist coming into impact, cupping it a bit. Whereas I would have been brought up to pronate into impact. Which, so the game has changed in that sort of technique. We now know more. And you would teach, you'd have to teach a kid that. If he's not doing it naturally, or you'd, he might do it naturally, but you'd look for that in a good player. But who cares with an older guy? Just get on with it. Or a woman. You know, like, I go to a place, and, and this is frustrating. Like, it's very busy with ladies. And the first hole is like 130 yards. And they're all, like, I've never seen anybody but hit a woodland. Like, and every one of them has a backswing that's way too long and a follow-through that's way too short. Mm. And you go, well, you know, why not? You know, you'd love to be able to say, like, that's a perfect example. They're confused that length is going to give them speed where you go, you know, a, a proper length, like a tighter, not tighter, but a, a, a position in the backswing where they can pull in that golf club and a bigger follow-through will give them more efficiency and power. And, and it shouldn't be too hard for, for that 45-year-old woman to hit the ball 180 yards in the air, something like that. And, you know, if you were hitting the ball 180 yards in the air as a lady, you're going to be a good player. You're going to be out there, you know. And if you're a man and you're hitting it 220, and I know most men listening to this will go, oh, I hit it 250 or something. I can tell you, if you're hitting it 220 with a bit of run, <laughs> you're going to be you, – you, you should be about a five handicapper. If you're hitting it 220 in the air, and it's running up to 30 yards more. You should be down there about five handicap. And, and most people think that it's, that's not the case. Like, you, you guys know that. You're off regular yeah, tees. Yeah. People hit the golf ball nowhere near as far as they think they, they, <laughs> they do. <laughs> it was that one time when they hit it 250, but you're right. And it was sunny and downwind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Do, do you know what? You have been amazing with the time. I mean, we spoke to you before. We've got about an hour. I think we could have gone for five hours. And I think anybody who's listened to this, I'm sure 100% of people sh- will go and check out your YouTube channel because they're just, and you're just thinking about the passion, the knowledge, obviously, yeah, yeah. the passion in this. And, yeah. you know, the fact that they know how much you care about the game and making people better. I think it's, 
unbelievable that you're doing it. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you so much for your time as well. Isn't it a great resource? Oh, YouTube. Like you could live in the middle of nowhere with no access yeah. to a coach. And if you want it, you can learn how to do anything. Yeah. You can learn how to become a ball striker. Clearly you need to play in order to become a golfer. But it's for not like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I did it without this when I was a kid, <laughs> but it's there. You know, you, you can, you can go out there and learn it, you know, get all you want, at least bring you to a level that you then need that personal coach, which yeah. is, I think again, you're the same guys. We're all there. We know we're just trying to give you the enough that you get to a point that you go, right. I have a few ideas. I need now to talk to somebody to say, yeah, you've done that too much. You're not doing that one enough. And, and that's a, a golf is always going to be like that. It's a ticking clock. You, one day you're over here and then and the better you get, the less the clock ticks. It might tick from a second to 12 o'clock to a second past. <laughs> but it, it never stays in the same place. Bob, that's another one from Bob Torrance as well. Yeah. He will always tell you, you your, your golf swing will never stay in the same place all the time. It will always be moving from one to the other. Too much draw, too much fade. The best players played like that as well. Yeah, yeah. they've got, they got to learn to deal with it, haven't they? Which is uh, the key thing. So, um, I mean, we'd love to do some stuff with you on YouTube at some point when, when we're through this as well. So that would be really good. We'd yeah. Come yeah, over to we'll, Ireland we'll, maybe we'll get, and do some stuff. Yeah, we'll get something done. You can come to my house and try and break a few windows. There we go. You know, <laughs> yeah. Massive, massive garden envy. <laughs> You've got yeah. one of the best gardens in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got to say, I have a, yeah, I built a garden like I would dream of as a kid. Yeah. Uh, mind you, because I have it too, I now, I now wish for a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I, I know exactly that. I know exactly the practice hole I would practice on. Okay. Put it like that. So yeah. I, 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 I'm a firm believer that if, if anybody's listening, you're way better off practicing on a golf course than you are on a range. Yeah. And you should always. There's certain holes. There's there's golf holes that I go on and go. Wow, I really really despise and hate this hole, but I'd love to practice on it every day. Yeah, you know, and and you should find that hole at your golf course, and and certainly, you know, there's certain shots I, I go, this would just be a phenomenal hole for improving your ability to play the game. Uh, so I do. If the weather was better, I believe I you should get out in the golf course and do a bit more work. Obviously, with COVID, we can't do that. But the next best thing is I've, I'm on a good streak here. So this is uh, what what is 14th of January? Yeah. 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 So I started on the 23rd and I haven't missed my bunker drill or chipping drill since then, every day. Brilliant. And since the third, I've done my wedge and iron drills as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I, the kids, this is, the kids are very much into this when it comes to uh, the likes of Snapchat. And they have these streaks where how many days in a row they kept up. The, <laughs> yeah. And it's very good for practice. Yeah. How long can you keep a streak going where you just you don't miss a day of doing a certain thing? Yeah. So I'm I, I'm on that bit of a kick at the moment. So even I'm trying to learn and improve as we go uh, every day as I go along. Brilliant, super. And that, I mean that's that's just demonstrates why you've been so successful and had a great career as well, Padraig. So uh, look, thank you so much for your time. Like, like, this has been like um, a real treat for us to get to pick the brains of a major champion, You're somebody like you. So really appreciate you and. Uh, I know the listeners are going to love this as well. So uh, thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, guys. Enjoy it. And we'll, uh, we'll see you out on the road. Will do, yeah. 
Thanks, cheers. Enjoy cheers. better times. <laughs> yeah, bye. Bye. Thank bye. you so much. Brilliant. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you found some great value in it. And if you did, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Also, let us know your feedback by leaving us a rating or review over on iTunes. And remember, if you want to go deeper and really improve your game, head over to meandmygolf.com and start your free trial and check out one of the many plans that are seeing incredible results. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to speaking to you next week.